All right, guys, good afternoon. Before we start, there's just two things that are in my heart that I kind of wanted to mention. Uh, first is that next Sunday will be the first Sunday that the graduating new college students will join us in EM. So when you guys see them next week, just say hi, love on them, welcome them, um, so they don't feel like they're awkward. The second thing I want to mention is this is my second time preaching on this pulpit. It's kind of funny because the first time I preached here, um, I was in a rush because Casey was graduating. This is my second time, and it's now the day before Casey's birthday. <laughs> so um, I guess if you see her, tell her happy birthday. <laughs> um, but looking at the text for today, we're in a series called Draw Near to God. It's about what does it mean to grow closer to God? What does it mean to dare to come towards Him, to encounter Him, to wrestle with Him? And the text for us today comes from 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Um, everyone else got like 10 verses. Ours is a little bit lucky. We just have four. We'll be looking at uh, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. This is the word of the Lord. After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, brought it into the temple of Dagon, and placed it next to his statue. When the people of Ashdod got up early the next morning, there was Dagon falling with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and returned him to his place. But when they got up early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. This time, Dagon's head and both of his hands were broken off and laying on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso remained. Let's pray. Father, as we enter today's text, I pray, Lord, that you may help us to recognize the authority behind it, that we may submit to you, we may surrender to you, and that we may dare to draw near to you. I pray, Lord, that we may find joy in listening to your word, and we may find joy recognizing that these are the words of the God who became man, who was willing to be humiliated and sacrificed everything so that we can have everything. Pray, Lord, that you may awaken us, that you may open up our spiritual ears, and that your word may not return void, but it may convict, it may heal, it may reassure, it may encourage us, Lord. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In 63 BC, Pompey the Great, it's a Roman general, conquers Jerusalem. And Pompey the Great, Roman general, again, he's heard about the Jews. He's heard about how they're religiously fanatic because every time someone brings in a statue, every time someone brings in a flag with someone's face on it, they just go crazy. They riot. And so Pompey the Great has learned about how hard it is to rule over Jerusalem. And in 63 BC, because he's curious about these guys who are religious fanatics, he decides, you know what, I'm going to find out who their God is. I want to get to the core of their religion. And so he brings in an army and decides, I'm going to walk into the Holy of Holies. Uh, for those of you guys who are unaware, that is the center of the temple, the holiest place of the temple. And he decides, I'm going to encounter their God. I'm going to see 
the center of their religion. They go in, he goes inside. He goes into the Holy of Holies, which he can because he has an army. And he is breathtaking, breathless, shook to his very foundation. He just he can't speak. Because as he looks at the Holy of Holies, he sees nothing. It's empty. And he thinks to himself, what is wrong with these people? Like, they're crazy. What is going on? And so he picks up his army, and he doesn't touch anything. He just goes right back to Rome. This might sound comical, but sometimes this is how our faith looks like. It's filled with ministry. It's filled with church stuff. It looks ornate and beautiful on the outside. But on the inside, there's nothing. It's empty. It's shallow. And this is exactly how Israel was like in our story today. When we read chapter 5, it's an amazing narrative. It's a crazy, it's an amazing story. But it's amazing because of the same reason why fireworks look so pretty on the backdrop of the night sky. So in chapter 4, Israel is filled with darkness. They're spiritually rotten. In the beginning of chapter, uh, 1 Samuel, chapter 4, we see the Israelites in a completely terrible place, completely corrupt, immoral place. See, the Ark of the Covenant, which is supposed to be in the temple, is no longer in the temple. It's just floating around. The priests who are corrupt and taking a, um, supposed to be, these are supposed to be the mediators between God and his people, but they're morally corrupt. They're taking bribes, and they're taking advantage of the people. And it is this spiritually immoral, corrupt, rotten Israel that decides, you know what, let's go to war with the Philistines. Sounds like a good idea. And they get completely destroyed, completely routed. 4,000 people die. And so they regroup, they go back to the drawing board and think to themselves, like, what can we do differently so that we can win the second time around? Hey, didn't we have a God? Let's go ahead and uh, bring the Ark of the Covenant and just carry it out the same way that like a basketball player would wear his favorite shoes. And they bring it in like a good luck charm. They have no relationship with their God. They're just bringing in God at the last minute, getting him off the bench so that he can seal the deal for them. But bringing the symbol of God's presence doesn't mean that they have God's presence with them. And the second time around, they get destroyed even worse than the first time. Not only is Israel defeated, but they lose 30,000 people. And Eli, who's supposed to be leading Israel at this time, he's killed. Two of his sons, the priests, um, both killed. And not only that, but the Ark of the Covenant, which holds the presence of God, is captured by the Philistines. And so at the end of chapter 4, there's a child who's born that kind of sums up the spiritual state of Israel. And his name is Ishkabad which means that the glory of God has departed. You know, ever since I was born, I never met a man named Ishkabod, so it seems like it never really made a comeback after this event. But at the end of chapter 4, the curtain closes, and the Israelites must have been thinking, what does it say about our God? We thought our God was the God of the universe, God of the heavens and the earth. What if our God is not as powerful as we thought? Here he is, captured by the Philistines, the God above all gods. What does it say about their God, Dagon? Might it be that our God is not as powerful? 
But in chapter 5, God reminds us that there's this truth that we need to remember. There's a truth that the Israelites forgot, but we can't afford to forget. It's a truth that can only be realized when we draw close to him, when we wrestle with him, when we encounter him. And it's that our God is above all other gods, and we must be mastered by him. So every time I preach, I do something called a sermon in a sentence. That basically means is, at the end of today, if you guys didn't get anything, you guys forget everything, please just remember this one sentence. If anyone asks you, what did Kevin say? It's the one sentence to repeat. Our God is above all other gods, and we must be mastered by him. We have two points for us today. Number one, our God cannot be controlled. And then point two, our God cannot coexist with your gods. Okay, point one, our God cannot be controlled. Let's go ahead and reread verses one through three. After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, brought it into the temple of Dagon, and placed it next to the statue. When the people of Ashdod got up early the next morning, there was Dagon falling with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took it from Dagon and returned him to his place. So when the Israelites first bring the ark of the covenant, the Philistines are horrified because they've heard about Yahweh. They heard about this God that brought Egypt, a superpower, down to his knees. And so the Philistines are panicking. They're scared. But after their victory, they go ahead and grab this Ark of the Covenant, and they place it next to Dagon, their God. And you guys might be thinking, all right, Kevin, who's Dagon? Why is he important? Well, Dagon was the national God of the Philistines at the time. We used to think that he was a God of fish, but... Um, scholars nowadays say that he's a god of wheat. He was the father of Baal, and he was the head of the Amar's pantheon. Basically, like the pantheon of gods for the Canaanites, he was the head of all of them, kind of like how Zeus is the head of the Greek gods. And so the Philistines go ahead and grab Yahweh, place him next to the god of all gods for them. So why would they bring Yahweh into the God, their God, Dagon's temple, if they're so afraid of Yahweh. Well, when they captured the ark, they interpreted this as a victory over Yahweh. They thought the ark was subjugate, uh, subjugated, it was defeated, and that Yahweh would join this pantheon of gods and become one of the gods they worship. That Yahweh would serve Dagon just like how the Israelites would serve the Philistines. They thought Yahweh would become this new transaction, uh, transactional god for them, that if they go ahead and sacrifice things to them, worship Yahweh, then Yahweh would in return bless them. But when they wake up the next morning, they see Dagon on his face, laying down in worship to Yahweh, as if he's running away from his own temple in the presence of the Lord. And keep in mind, Dagon is not like a small trinket. It's not like a small idol. It's a huge, enormous statue that's on the ground, shattered. And you would imagine, like, it would click for the Philistines that they have to pick up their God and put it back on the shelf. Like, if your God is a God that you have to always pick up and put back on the shelf, it's probably not a strong God. But this doesn't click for them. And Yahweh is trying to teach them that you can't control him like you control any other system. See, there's a similarity in karma, in Islam, in Buddhism, and for the worship of Dagon, is that there is a give and take. 
You worship, you do good, and you get good back. You do the right things, you follow the system, and you know what you're going to get in return. But there's no system to control God, uh, Yahweh, our God. You know situations where like, people think that they got it, they understand something, but they have no idea what's going on? That's where the Philistines are at right now. How many of you guys have ever watched the sitcom The Office? Just go and raise your hand. Have you guys ever seen it before? So a majority of you guys. So in The Office, we have two characters, Dwight and Jim. These are two office workers, salesmen. And there's a scene where they're all playing poker with each other. And Dwight looks at the camera and says, everybody has to tell. that You can tell when people are lying. And I know Jim's. Whenever Jim has a good hand, he coughs. And then you go ahead and see them playing poker. Jim coughs, and then um, Jim coughs, and then Dwight folds. And then Jim looks at the camera, and he says, I'm making a lot of money. Every, for some reason, every time I cough, he folds. And so Dwight thought he understood the system, but he didn't. In the same way, the Philistines think that they can control Yahweh, but they can't. They think Yahweh is one of these gods that if they meet the formula, then Yahweh will bless them. And they don't realize how wrong they are. But God's not just teaching this to the Philistines. He's also teaching this to the Israelites. Because when the Israelites first brought the Ark of the Covenant in war against the Philistines, like they weren't doing it because they wanted to worship him. They were manipulating Yahweh for their own gain. They were thinking to themselves, if we just bring out Yahweh, he will go ahead and win the war for us. They saw him as like a magic genie. And so we see both Israel and the Philistines thinking that they could control God, both being completely wrong, and Yahweh reminding both of them why. And the question is, is this you, church? Do you see God as this magic vending machine that you can only turn to when things go really bad for you, and you only talk to when you want something? And when things go really bad for you, you come to God and he bails you out, And then you go back to your same old lifestyle until you need something again? Is he a God that you just follow the formula for and you get mad if he doesn't give you what you want? But you can't contain God. You can't put him in your depths. And we know this because there's really, really faithful men in the Bible that has it go really, really bad for them. So back in high school, I used to have a club called Centurions for Christ. It was our Christian club. And I get the irony because the centurions were the ones who crucified Jesus. But you know, there was a spirit behind it. And in Centurions for Christ, what we would do is every meeting we would bring pizza. And we had lots of members. Every meeting we had like close to 50 members who would come in, pray with us, engage in Bible study with us. Um, But halfway into the year, you know, pizza, every meeting for high schoolers get kind of expensive. So one meeting we didn't bring pizza. And that day no one showed up. Everyone disappeared. And it became very clear to us that people didn't come for God. They came for the pizza. What we want them with is what we want them to. And in order to teach Israel that Yahweh, our God, can't be controlled and manipulated, he lets himself get captured. He wants to teach them that he wants them to treasure him, not his gifts. God risks his reputation to let the nations know He's not a God that can be contained. For the Israelites, he knocks Eli, 
And for the Philistines, he knocks Dagon. And it's clear that he will knock anyone down who tries to control him and sit on the throne of unrighteousness. Because he's not a transactional God. He's not a God of give or take. He's a God that he gave his only son to redeem an unfaithful people, not because of anything we've done or anything we will do. He accomplishes our salvation alone, and he gave us everything, and it cost us nothing. He's a God that was humiliated, crucified, so that if we believe in him and repent, then he can call us home. He left his home so that we can come home. He's a God of relationships, and he calls us not to be his customers, but to be his children. Say that again. He calls us not to be his customers, but to be his children. And isn't that so much better? Um, the best illustration that I could think about um, to kind of really like sum up this idea is an anime called Spy Family. The whole presence of this anime is about using each other for their own ulterior, ulterior motives. The protagonist, for those of you guys who've never seen the show, his name is Lloyd, and he's a spy. And in order to succeed in his mission, he needs to adopt a child and he needs to find a wife. Because his mission is that he needs to get his adopted child through an interview to attend a private school. So he goes ahead to an orphanage, finds a daughter, he goes ahead and finds a woman to marry, and he brings that child into the interview. And during the interview, the daughter is asked, do you love your adopted mother more, or do you love your birth mother more? And she begins to cry. And so now Lloyd is given two choices. He can either, one, just go ahead and use his daughter so he could succeed in his mission, or two, he could stand up for his daughter, risking his mission. And at that moment, Lloyd throws away his chances at succeeding in his mission. He smashes the table and he stands up for his daughter because he recognized that his adopted daughter was more than the benefits she could provide him. She was more than just a tool. She was family. We need to recognize that our God can't be contained. He can't be controlled. We can't abuse him. We can't somehow find out how he functions and find out all the loopholes to get him to bless us. We can't say all the Christian words so that we can fake it. But we can receive the right to be a part of his family, to submit, to surrender to him, to recognize that he knows best and that he is sovereign because he is greater than all our other gods. It's better to have a God call us to be his family than a God to call us to be his customer. All right, point two. Point two. God cannot coexist with your gods. Our God cannot coexist with your gods. Let's go and read verses three to four one more time. When the people of Ashdod got up early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and returned him to his place. But when they got up the early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. This time, Dagon's head and both of his hands were broken off and lying on the threshold, and only Dagon's torso remains. So when the Philistines placed Yahweh in Dagon's temple, they're adding Yahweh to their collection of idols, to their collection of gods, as if Yahweh is just another god that they can pray to. And whatever our idols may be, our God in heaven laughs. Why would you give your entire life so that people can like you? 
why would, give, why would you give away your entire life to your job and that eventually fades away? Why would you give your entire life for a retirement? That's like maybe, what, 20, 30 years that you could enjoy? Why would you throw away all of eternity for these other idols? Why would you throw away eternity? Why would you throw away your God for things that never delivers on his promises and that would eventually kill you? Why would you throw away your life for Dagon? And our God's not a God who can coexist with other gods. Even without Israel, we see in our story that God completely conquers the Philistines, decimates uh, Dagon, and in verse 4, we see him claim complete victory. So what does it mean for Dagon to have his head cut off and his arms cut off? It's probably exactly what you guys are thinking. It's complete submission. If we see in 1 Samuel chapter 17, or in the 1 Samuels and 2 Samuels, we see this theme over and over. David cuts off the head of Goliath to show complete dominance. David cuts off the hands and feet of the man he defeats in 2 Samuel 4.12. And when Saul is defeated, his head is cut off. In the same way, what Yahweh is doing is he's saying, these gods of the nations are nothing but feeble creations of human hands. And over and over in the Old Testament, what God is saying is that this is silly. It's not just wrong. In Isaiah 44, um, this idea is really, really well demonstrated. In Isaiah 44, there's a man who plants a tree. Right? This man plants a tree, he lets it grow. And he cuts down that tree. And he uses some of that tree to make a fire, and he warms himself. He makes himself some food. Then he builds a house with some of that tree. And with the very, uh, very same wood that he made his meal, that he made his house, he makes it into an idol and he worships it? That makes no sense. Why would you bow down to an inanimate object that you make? Could it be that your real God is yourself? In Psalms 115, we see the words, why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. And those who, be, who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. And that cements what is true of all time. It's that we become what we behold. We become what we worship. Every one of us becomes reshaped according to the God that we worship. You become like your idols. You become what you desire most. And isn't that true? Aristotle once said that we're a combination of all the small decisions we make. You don't become a sage overnight every day you read. You don't become buff overnight every day you work out. In the same way, every day you choose to worship something, you become like that God. On the other hand, it's silly. This is silly. Um, God loves us far too much to leave us there, and he will not coexist with you worshiping other things. Uh, let me go ahead and give an example. Last Saturday, not yesterday, last Saturday, um, we saw Henry and Trisha got mar- um, getting married. Just imagine if Henry, during his vows, turns to Trisha and says, I love you, but I also love Samantha, Grace, um, Christine, and starts naming a bunch of other girls. Like, that wouldn't fly well. We wouldn't say that that's good, Right? Or let's say that there was a man who was getting a uh, portrait made for his family. And the painter decides, you know what, let me go ahead and replace his wife 
and make her look like somebody else. Let's go ahead and have these, their children look a little like something else. He wouldn't be happy. Um, in the same way, God wants all of you because what he's done for you deserves all of you. He doesn't coexist with other gods. In the same way, you wouldn't be happy if your significant other had three other people. He wants all of you, and he's not satisfied with other gods. Um, so some of you guys know, lately I've been teaching AP U.S. history. Um, I'm a teacher at a high school, and so my mind is just filled with, I think, history examples. And the one I felt like was really appropriate here, it was the story of Samuel Finley Brees Morris. Oh, that's a mouthful. Samuel Finley Brees Morris. So this guy was born in like the 1700s, 1800s, during the Revolutionary War. And he was a painter for most of his life. He studied at Yandover at Yale. And he lived in New Haven, Connecticut with his wife, Lucretia, and two kids, and the third was on his way. One day, he receives a message saying that the hero of the Revolutionary War, Lafayette, those of you guys who watched Hamilton, you know who that is, Lafayette would sit for him if he leaves for Washington right away. And so he goes ahead, packs his easels, wears clothes that are nice enough to meet a man like Lafayette, and goes ahead all the way to Washington. Once he gets there, he sits down, puts away his stuff, gets ready to meet the man, and a courier comes, a messenger comes, and hands him a message that says, your wife is dying. So he goes on horseback, on juddering wagons, day in, day out, no rest, until he gets back home. He gets back home, he runs up the steps, runs to the door, opens the door, and he finds out that his wife had passed away. Not only that, but his wife had passed away before he even received the first message. Not only that, but she was buried while he was still on the road so that he could be beside her side while she got better. Samuel Finley Brees Morris spends the next half of his life inventing the telegraph and Morse code so that no one else would have to feel the way he felt that night. And the very first message that he puts on the telegraph was what God had wrought, which means what has God done? This is what God has done. The last telegraph message he gives is our God is above all things. So if Samuel Finley Brace Morris was radically changed from a painter to an inventor by the death of his wife, how have you been changed by the death of Jesus Christ? Could it be that you're not spiritually growing because there are other idols that are clouding your heart for his affections? Because God can't coexist with other idols. What he's done for you was so radical that there's no way that you're consumed by anything else. So if you recognize what he's done for you, you should be absolutely changed. Um, a lot of the times when I teach high school um, or when I do youth, I get a lot of the students tell me, um, Kevin, it's really hard for me to put God first in my priority. It's sometimes school first, then God, or like friends first, then God. But if you recognize what God has done for you, then God's not in that numerical order whatsoever. It should be God is the center of your life. And then whether it's family first, school second, friends third, whatever order you have, every single one of those should be pointing to your center. This is Jesus Christ. So church, what are your idols? What are the things that are competing for your affections? What are the things that are competing for God's worship? 
what are the things that God is asking you to give up in your heart? And this is hard. It's hard to trust God, trust that he's good, and that he'll give you what is necessary and sometimes give you what you want. Sometimes. Um, recently, I realized that I was getting older when I found out what I do for fun is look at Airbnbs and see how nice some houses are. Look at houses that I know that I'll never be able to afford. Um, but there's some really nice million-dollar mansions in Malibu. Let's pretend that you owned a million-dollar mansion in Malibu, right, with a bunch of rooms, a lot of floors, and let's say that you're the homeowner, and one day a man comes into your house, grabs that painting you have above your fireplace, and smashes it on the ground. And he goes in and takes your Persian rug, throws it into the fire. You'll freak out. You'll be devastated. Um, and a lot of the times, that man is like Jesus, and we're like those homeowners. God is entering into the home of your heart. He's seeing all these idols, and he's redecorating. He's tossing your idols away. But a lot of the times, we're like the Philistines. We follow behind Jesus Christ. We see things that he smashed down. We pick it back up, and we try to put it back to its rightful place. God throws down the painting. We try to pick it back up and put it back up. Because we're afraid that what he says may not be true. We're afraid that sometimes he may not be right. And so you cannot be like God, you cannot worship God while worshiping other idols. It's one or the other. Either you submit to Yahweh and he will destroy the other idols in your life, or you'll give in to those other idols. God does not coexist with your idols because he is so much greater. In order to have substance in our faith, so that it's not just beautiful on the outside and empty in the inside, we have to draw closer to him and recognize that God is better than your idols. God is better than your idols, and we have to be mastered by him alone. Let me go ahead and close out today with an illustration by a movie that I recently watched. It's called Good Will Hunting, and I love it. And there's a scene that I love. It's between Will Will is this arrogant high school kid. He's a genius who thinks he knows everything. And Sean is a much older man who's his therapist. And this is Sean talking to Will. And he says, Michelangelo, you know a lot about him. His life's work, everything, right? But I bet you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You never actually stood there and looked up at that beautiful ceiling. You're a tough kid. I'll ask you about war, and you'll probably throw Shakespeare at me, right? Once more into the breach, dear friends. But you've never been near war. You've never held your best friend's head on your lap, watch him gasp his last breath, looking at you for help. If I asked you about love, you'd probably quote me a sonnet, but you've never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable, known someone could level you with her eyes, feeling like God put an angel on earth just for you, who could rescue you from the depths of hell, and you wouldn't know what it's like to be her angel, to have that love for her be there forever, through anything, through cancer. And you wouldn't know about sleeping, sitting up at a hospital room for two months, holding her hand, because the doctors could see in your eyes that the terms visiting hours don't apply to you. You don't know about real loss, because that only occurs when you love something or someone more than you love yourself. 
And Sean, in that dialogue, gets at the truth that's essential for us to know. It's that we can only have substance in our faith and be mastered by God when we love someone more than we love ourselves, when we love someone more than we love our idols. And that's Jesus Christ. We need to recognize that we cannot control God and have him alongside our other idols. We can't just know about him, show up at church, do church things, and think that we have a relationship with him. We have to experience him. And so if we truly want a faith with substance, we must recognize God is above all other gods and that we must be mastered by him. Because one day, every knee will bow. The hardest heart that you could think of, maybe the hardest heart in this room, the hardest heart, the dagons of all the worlds will be cast down. The question is not whether you'll bend your idols before God. That's going to happen. One day, every knee will bow before the true God of the universe. But let us not wait till later. Let's recognize the call that God gives for us to be a part of his family. Let us bow the knee before Christ today. Let's pray.